you get off on the weird? Monsters, Halloween, horror. You've heard of word porn, car porn, earth porn. Now prepare yourself for monster porn. Is this really a good idea? Weird fiction and horror podcast. Created by the backwards hat guy, Matt Cummins. Are you trying to teach psychic powers to animals? Puggles, the abomination trapped in the body of an adorable teacup piggy. Good for human. And myself, lead occultist, Brett Norwood. This week's story is Starbat by Brett Norwood. Good day, Monster Baiters. Thanks for tuning in for another week's episode of Monster Porn. Before we get started today, I just want to remind everyone to rate, review, and subscribe. I know, I know it's a pain in the ass, but it helps. iTunes is a tricky nut to crack, but leaving a five-star review and subscribing are the best ways to help out. Do you have anything, Brett? Indeed I do, Matt. We've held off on pushing our merch for a while. We have some awesome merch with original artwork from myself and esteemed collaborators Nick Calavera and Dustin S., which you can find at monsterpornpodcast.com slash store. All right, let's get freaky. Matt, congratulate me. Congratulations. I'm uncomfortable. Hi, uncomfortable. I'm Brett. And I've just completed my first Indiegog Magog crowdfunding campaign. Oh, God, Brett. Crowdfunding? What are you making and how in the hell did you dupe people into paying money for it? I've always wanted to make my comics real, Matt. So you're publishing a crowdfunded comic book? Congrats. That's cool, I guess. I hear that's a thing now. No, Matt. I said, I'm making my comics real. Behold! This portal is the gateway to another universe where comic book tropes are as real, as is now the ground beneath our feet. As real as your palpable discomfort that I'm choosing to ignore. That's your crowdfund project? Verily, Matt. My backers supported the archaeological expedition to dig up this ancient relic gateway, abandoned and buried in the desert sometime in the late 90s with the collapse of the comic book industry. With this portal, Matt, we can restore contact between the comic book world and the boring world. A world with many times more bam and pow and friggin' boom! So it's a gate? A comics gate? Indeed. Grab your ham. We're about to embark upon a much ratter world. Grab my... Oh, Puggles, I gotcha. Here, Piggy Piggy. The shit you want! Oh, is that the, uh, comics gate? You know it. You bet your rump roast, Pig Beast. Let's go. Oh, well, why not? My wife won't miss me until supper. Hold. Who's the Gandalf motherfucker? He looks like a sexagenarian cosplaying as a D&D wizard. He looks like a D&D wizard cosplaying as a human being. Do not enter. This gate is fraught with problematic sociocultural tendencies. What do you mean, dude? Comic books are just good fun, right? Adolescent, or 35-year-old, fantasies come to life. Nay, I say to you danger lurks within yon world, young man. My name is Alan Moore. I am the wizard who guards the gate, and I tell you, there be violence and titties in there. 
Okay. Doesn't that make you sick? Not really. I kind of want to see it now. Dudes! This old queef is a bore! Let's get to them rockin' comic book titties! This queefy bore created some of the raddest comic books of the 20th century. Really? That's awesome. Let's check it out. Hold. If you do not cease, I will be forced to speak magical. That's magical with a K, mind you. This isn't silly fairy stuff. Incantations at you. Do not force me to- Let's just go around him. Hey. No. That's it. Hey! They just walked right by. Whoa! I feel friggin' jacked! Flippy out, bucko! Look at you! You are friggin' jacked! You're slamming that spandex suit! Madman! Frag! You're stacked too, bro. For once, you look good in a cape, Bretlock. Look at your posterior. Zowie! Is that real? Hey, what about Pug? Nobody say a thing! Whoever says a word dies, body and soul. Those are some rockin' tatas. I said you die! He's... Er, she's like... 70% legs. That missile battery on your shoulder really goes with the catsuit pugs. That utility belt brings out your butt. That's some lean bacon. God damn it! Me damn it! If you don't stop sexualizing my body, this big fragging gun is going up your super sphincter! <laughs> Look at all these pouches on my costume. What do I even store in here? Dude, I like how your ponytail is flowing in the wind. I have hair? So, now that we're superheroes, what do we do? We need a team name so we can have our own ongoing floppy. I'll give you an ongoing floppy. I'll wait for the trade, thank you. Bag and board it, team. We got trouble. Who or what is the beast charging at us? This villain looks like he's from the death of Superman arc. He's unstoppable. Dumbsday is the only bad guy too dumb to perceive pain or literary criticism. Driven purely by corporate perception of market forces, he is a true destroyer of narrative continuity and fan expectation. How do we stop him? He kills us, our series gets cancelled, and he vanishes with it. Oh, Frag. Dumbsday indeed. Wait, this is the new Dumbsday, from the 20-teens comic book reboot. How can you tell? Diversity. It's just the old Dumbsday, but vaguely ethnic of complexion. So what does that mean? Do we survive this? Uh, um, uh, hi. My name is Dumbsday, and I'm a misunderstood character. I love science and women, and I just want to be a better representation of people of color in media. Great, Scott. This really is going to get our title canceled. Edward Adder stood ankle-deep in the ink-black shallows of the ponds at the moon's twilight, and he watched the final sliver of the earth in all its joyful greens and blues on the gray horizon. He didn't know there was water on the moon, but then maybe it was all different when you were dead. Eddie cast his gaze again out into space. 
He was right on the line of the light and the dark. And ahead of him, a field of stars struggled to exist against the blanket of black. He had no idea how long he'd waited, but he knew what he was waiting for when she arrived. Avery, from Social Studies. But Eddie didn't recognize Avery Case until she flew in close. While he was on the moon in his street clothes, striped shirt, hands shoved into baggy shorts pockets, his size 13 and a half Reeboks, that at his height resembled clown shoes, Avery was dressed in something outlandish. But who is he to judge what was outlandish in outer space when you were dead? Maybe the street clothes were ridiculous. Avery had some sort of hooded bodysuit, frayed at the thighs and higher up on the arms, all of it maroon and gunmetal in color. Further, it came complete with a moth-eaten, blood-red cape, probably not having been eaten by moths out in space. But maybe there were space moths. There was moon water, apparently. Avery's outfit was draped in chains, which he saw twinkle as she came down in front of him, toes hovering over the tranquil waters. The chains bound clasps on her wrists together like handcuffs, but with an ample allotment of slack. The chain also wrapped around her waist like a belt. She wore a mask over her eyes, somewhat in Zorro fashion. She had ears, like animal ears. I didn't know this was a costume party, Eddie said, and he couldn't tell whether he should be surprised to hear his voice in space. So are you dead too, eh? No. She told him. Here to come with me. Where? He asked. Does it matter? She retorted. Uh, yeah. I mean, I am dead, right? I remember... He started to say and trailed off. Avery was roughly as cheery as he remembered her from class. He didn't know her well, just that she was there and then she wasn't really. She always looked gloomy. A little goth with a penchant for black garb mingled with electric blues, bright purples, or neon pinks. She had been friends with Kylie. He didn't know Kylie either. Then Avery had gone missing. There had been the alerts, the posters, the search parties. But they never found her, or even a good clue. All of the town of Vantage came to consider her dead. This had been last year in eighth grade. Now here she was on the moon, and they had been wrong. There wasn't really any doubt that Eddie was dead, though. He had a pretty clear memory of that, and plenty of time to stand there playing it over and over in his head. So what's up? Eddie wondered. Why are you chained? She seemed to glare at him, but it was difficult to read with a Zorro mask. No, seriously. Eddie tried again. Are you okay? What is all this? When she was not quick to answer, he said, You remember me, right? Avery? Eddie from school? We thought you were dead. She took a deep breath. Of what, he didn't know. There only being the faintest of atmosphere. And she put down her hood, exposing her hair, as he remembered black with a teal highlight but more so the two-pointed animal ears sticking out from the side of her head. Well, now I know you heard me anyway, he muttered. She wasn't impressed by this either. 
Avery pointed her whole arm out into space. You see that? She said. Now? He said reluctantly. What? Shabalba, she said. What? Just looks like more stars in space, he said. No, she told him. You see the track of the Milky Way, right? There. If you follow it, you see the blank space in the middle of it there. Yes, he said. That is where I must take you, she told him. Oh, what's in it? The blank space, he asked. She stared at him and then shook her head. Nothing, she said. For you, nothing. Avery drifted off away from the moon's surface, and Eddie found himself following. He found he could float and direct his flotation as he willed. He was quiet for a while and just watched her ahead of him. He wondered if it meant anything that he had died, and the person he saw there was Avery. He'd never thought of her romantically before, or even particularly thought of her at all. She had been a girl on the utmost periphery of his life. So are you going to tell me what's up with the suit? He called to her. She glanced over her shoulder and answered him facing away again. Eddie, this is easier without questions. What is easier? He demanded. That also is a question, she observed. I don't get it, he muttered, throwing up his hands. M and F and afterlife didn't look at all like this in the brochures. This is not the afterlife, she said. It was the first thing she had said with any conviction. This is the twilight of your life. What's on the other side? he said. I told you. Nothing, she said bitterly. He caught up to her and gazed at her from the side. You're really not going to tell me what's going on, Avery? He pleaded. You, she said slowly, with the emphasis of an explanation given to an idiot, are going there. Again she pointed with her whole arm to the void in the stars with a name that had sounded like a sneeze made with Botox lips. We have a long way to go, even for the speed at which we're traveling. The speed, he started to repeat, and he turned about to look behind him at the earth and the moon. They were already gone. Whoa, he said. Sayonara world that I knew. It was real. She glanced him up and down. Don't be afraid, she said. It makes this harder for me. I'm not, he started to say, but her dead stare cut him short. Should I be? He said, voice rising. And don't try to get away, she said. It will hurt. What? He marveled. You are to go there directly, and I am to see to it and keep you safe till you're delivered. Please don't make this difficult. And... Don't think that because you know my name from sitting in the same classroom for a semester that I owe you anything special or will do you any favors. What we have to do is simple. We're simply going to do it. Got it? Eddie nodded. After a while, he said, quietly, So this is, like, what you do now? I mean, for more than just me, then? Yes, 
she said. So, what happens when we get there? He asked. She looked at him. How many ways can I say nothing? Avery remembered the blackbirds in May, in a flooded marsh in a green field, perched on dead cattails and the bare remains of a dead tree, calling to each other in their hoary voices. They were tricolors, red patches with yellow bars on their wings. There were so many, making so much noise. It made her feel something. Childish wonder. Faith in sunny days. The pang of nostalgia. Every case had been a snot, and she knew it. But she wasn't going to change or anything. She'd run away, but failed to make it farther than the marsh at the edge of town, and now she tarried on the boardwalk, watching the birds bark and croak and chase each other in the reeds. What now? she wondered. Turn tail and come home with the shame face of a runaway of all of four hours, who couldn't figure out how to make it one night away from home. But she couldn't think of where to crash other than a motel, and she didn't have much money. It had been a show, of course, stomping out of the house, and the practicalities had not been considered. Footsteps sounded on the boards of the pier. Avery focused her eyes on the tricolor perched on the dead tree and tried to ignore the passerby. Hey, babe. Why the sad? Colton, a junior. Handsome in a gross sort of way, but trouble. Avery glanced, but leaned harder on the rail and denied him her gaze in favor of the reeds below. He put his hand on the rail next to her, facing the shoulder that she'd turned to him, and standing far too close. How about it's none of your business? Avery answered at last. She didn't need to look. She could practically hear his toothy doggish grin. Say, does your pastor dad know you're out here alone talking to strangers? She drew a hissing breath through her teeth. I get it, I get it, Colton said, turning to lean his back against the rail and gaze off into the sky. I've got bad days, too, and lots of people think I'm a pretty sour shithead myself. You really know how to charm, Avery spat. Hey, maybe this convo got off on the wrong foot, Colton said. Look, I'm just looking to make friends. I heard there's someone looking for a friend over there she said, nodding the way he'd come. Huh, <laughs> he chuckled. That's funny, but seriously. What's up? You didn't just come out here to pray, did you? Have some Jesus time. How about we find something more interesting to do? I hear the carnival's in town. He wasn't going to go. Avery took a deep breath and prepared to tell him off. She wondered why it suddenly smelled like paint thinner. This wasn't the kind of guy to have just taken polish off of his nails. She turned and raised her finger to lecture him. Rivulets like dirty engine oil spurted from Colton's mouth in tear ducts. His face contorted in a muted scream. Avery fell against the railing. The sky began to burn white hot as the blackbirds tumbled, insensible, into the marsh. <laughs> Eddie pressed on. They figured out pretty quickly that Colton Bannock had the dubious honor of being the last person to see you alive. He said... He's alive? Avery interrupted. Her eye contact disarmed him, 
Her eyes were showing a lot of white. Uh, yeah, Eddie told her. Why, should he, should he not be? Just go on, she said quickly, and the eye contact was gone. So, uh, all he could say, and he repeated it over and over apparently, like an idiot, was that you looked sad and which clothes you were wearing, which definitely weren't these. Hmm, she toned. Of course that was suspicious, but they didn't end up thinking he had anything to do with it. We all just figured you were gotten by some creep, I mean, other than Colton. Mm-hmm, she acknowledged. Now she was comfortably back to not being asked to care what Eddie was saying. He saw you in Riverside Park, Eddie continued. What happened? How did you get here? Your questions don't matter, she said haltingly. I appreciate the conversation, but we're not here to make friends. He kind of wished she would ask him how he died. That would tell him that she didn't know, and he could relax. He could tell her the simplified version and be in the clear. But it was abundantly apparent she didn't want to talk at all. This was like the worst road trip ever, except all the parties were presumed dead and it was in space. I just don't get why you're in my afterlife and dressed like some sort of star bat. This isn't the afterlife, she insisted again. All right, he said and shut up, or tried to. After a minute, he thought he'd be smart. What's over there? Eddie raised an arm and pointed and then made a beeline to the right. Avery stopped dead and watched, unamused and detached as ever. Can we go anywhere out here? Eddie wondered. Have you explored? Like, what about those stars over there? Maybe there's life? Do you know? That'd be cool. Eddie wandered out into the void until he met a red-hot iron fist right from the forge, which seized him and crushed him. What is this? he yelled. It burned and enveloped him. Every muscle in his body, if he had a body, found itself wrenched and seared. All he could see for it was a translucent red veil cast over the universe. He cried out in pain. Then he understood. From somewhere deep in his subconscious, a new urge surfaced. At an instinctual level, there was a homing beacon blaring, telling him exactly where Avery was and that he must go to her. Eddie, desperate, propelled himself toward Avery, and the pain fell by half, and then again by half, and then he was beside her. She nodded at him as his mouth hung open. It's because of these, she said, showing the cuffs fastened to her wrists and chained together. Don't wander. Come on. She looked sad. Now Eddie was quiet for a very long time. Peel McConnell was a coward. Fruit Peel, they called him, though he almost certainly wasn't actually gay. Eddie kept an eye on the kid, and in fact it seemed like he had a pathetic crush on Asia Delarose that left him quaking every time she so much as passed within thirty feet of him. Eddie caught Peel trying to talk to her once, and it was the most uncomfortable thing he'd ever seen. Very hard to watch. The second-hand embarrassment wrenched his stomach. 
Eddie and his friend Logan were leaving the school cafeteria. He was just dumping his tray when he saw a fruit peel sitting on the end of the table, loosely attached to a group of gifted and talented kids, but minding his own business and being ignored in return. Eddie saved a giblet of chicken in a napkin, a devilish grin, an irresistible one, cutting his face as he exchanged a glance with the confused Logan. The two marched down the aisle between tables. When Eddie passed fruit peel, he grabbed the back of Peel's collar and dumped in the contents of the napkin. Logan slapped him on the back as they broke into laughter without stopping on their way out of the cafeteria. This was why Logan was his friend, the sense of humor. Logan thought Eddie was the funniest dude around, and Eddie embraced it. But then they heard swift, stumbling sneakers and turned in time to see fruit peel, red-faced and teary, taking a sloppy swing right at Eddie's head. The right hook caught him in the temple, and he could feel the eyes roll in his head for a second. But he recovered, and with thanks to an education growing up with his older brother's friends, delivered a punch with a much tighter follow-through to Peel's face, and he fell to his knees, clutching his eye. Don't you fucking ever! Eddie spat. But already the tide of rage was subsiding, and he recognized his own harshness. Yeah, Fruit Peel, Logan agreed and kicked Peel half-heartedly in the leg. Eddie gazed down at the kid with some horror. Peel was disgusting, a constant sack of stifled tears and barely repressed shame who dressed himself like it was photos day in 1988. But Eddie also hated how this had escalated. It had been a joke, and now they had made a scene, and the bud wipe was going to be rocking a shiner for it. Come on, Eddie urged Logan to keep moving. But as they were leaving, the assistant principal had already caught up to the scene. Everyone, including Peel, was going to the office for the fight. This honestly didn't bother Eddie much, but the whole way down the hall, Peel held his one eye and glared at him with the other. An eye red and swollen with held back tears. Eddie would look at him, and the eye would dart back down to his shoes. He groaned inwardly. This kid was more fucked up than he had thought. They were led to the main office and had to wait for the principal. They waited in silence. Eddie stared at the cup of pens on the desk and didn't look at Peel at all. When the principal came in and started questioning, Peel didn't want to speak up, so Eddie started telling the principal that it was just a joke that got out of hand. But the principal turned to Peel and asked him if that was true. To Eddie's horror, when the principal finally got Peel started talking, what came out was evidence that Peel had clung on to every little interaction he'd ever had with Eddie over the last two years, and had apparently attached undue meaning to all of it. There was the time Eddie slapped a binder out of his hand in the hall, the time he and Logan whacked Peel with a ruler, the time Eddie moved his gym clothes to a different locker for a laugh. Worse, he got started on the things Eddie had called him, bursting into red-eyed tears and choking on his words. Eddie's jaw fell open, and he felt like throwing up. When Peel's main nickname of Fruit Peel came out, the principal put his hand on Peel's shoulder and told him that it wasn't okay, Eddie's teasing. But it was okay if he was... You know. Peel exploded, his face red and snot flying. I'm not! I'm fucking not! Eddie couldn't watch. He put his head in his hands and stared at the carpet. He hardly thought about Peel at all except when he was joking around, but to Peel, 
It was like this was his whole life. When the principal turned again to Eddie, Eddie sat up and put on his best neutral face. He glanced at Logan and saw that he was pale and about as uncomfortable as Eddie was. Then Eddie looked the principal in the eye again and said, confidently, It was just some joking around. It got out of hand. It wasn't supposed to mean anything. I didn't realize. His voice trailed off. Avery watched Eddie from the corner of her eye. He was quiet now. It was what she had wanted from him, but somehow now she hated it. He looked just like he had on Earth, but dim and slightly transparent now, like a shadow. He glared ahead into space, his jaw set firm, brow heavy. It was the first time they had sent anyone she had known. She didn't like it. She didn't know him well. He had always been all right to her, but they had maybe a sum total of five direct interactions through middle school. He hung out with Logan. She didn't really know him either. That's just what she knew about them, is that they were often together. She had the impression that Eddie was a goof, and he clearly still was. That was about it. It's just how it works, she found herself saying aloud. I'm sorry. What? he said. These things, she said, holding out her wrists to show the bolted cuffs, tethered together and to her waist by chains. They do things like that. They hurt you if you try to go somewhere else. They do other things, too, to keep you safe. Safe from, Eddie said. We've got to make it to Shabulba with you in one piece and unmolested. That's all. You can tell me what happened to you. The next thing she remembered was, once again, the still cattails, the green field, and the blackbirds. But her father's face was there, bobbing in front of her, while she sat in something like a dentist's chair. Something was crawling inside her skin. I would like to be your friend, her dad's inflated head said. It was cartoonish, grotesque, perpetually grinning like a TV car salesman. It was on a stick. What is... She stammered. She was already crying. Her head throbbed. She clutched her hand at her collar. It took her fingers three tries to find the Peter Cross. Instinctively, her eyes flirted with her surroundings, like an animal looking for the best route to bolt. She found that the cattails were wrong, too. It all looked flat. A projection. The head on a stick bobbed with the syllables it spoke. Do you speak your name? I would like you to be my friend! I'm your father, not your friend, said her real father. I'm not going to just tell you what you want to hear. That's not how the truth works. Those might have been the last words he said to her before she slipped out the door to spite him. He was scared for her. She could understand that. But he was also overbearing, controlling, utterly frustrating. And couldn't he see that? She didn't see how going to a simple party, with people she'd been in class with for two years, could imperil her mortal soul. Sure, she took her salvation seriously. But these were her friends, and it was just a little bit of fun. But her dad didn't trust them, didn't trust her, and that hurt. 
She didn't see herself as just being a brat about missing some fun. She was also enraged that he babied her and didn't allow her the responsibility of looking out for herself. It didn't help that he didn't understand the black clothes, the makeup, the hair dye, the music. To her father, these were the first steps away from the way, into what he kept saying was a phase, but was a code word for the peril of eternal damnation. They were flirtations with Satan. They put her in the shoes of the prodigal daughter now. She could see how his perspective on her had changed in the last year, from perfect princess to problem child. Even though her behavior hadn't changed, and her grades hadn't changed, he didn't understand the ballpoint sketches in her comp books that mingled hearts with headstones and crosses with cadavers. She didn't stop going to church or bowing her head for grace. She didn't hiss and melt whenever he quoted scripture at her. She loved Jesus. She loved her dad and the rest of her family. But she wanted to do what she wanted to do, and she wasn't going to sacrifice it all for his comfort. She wasn't in danger. Why couldn't he see that? Or she hadn't thought she was in danger. But there was the notebook drawing that wasn't like the others, which she woke up to draw at three in the morning. A slur of geometric shapes, a triangle mating with a rectangle, coupling with a cross, on the leg of which is another cross, and above the whole figure, a long line. She scrolled it hastily in ballpoint pen before the memory could fade. Then she ran to the bathroom, got sick, and stayed home the next day from school. Now, looking back, she wondered if this had all been her fault. Eddie couldn't believe how boring space was. It made Elon Musk seem like an idiot. Or maybe it was only the straight and swift path they had taken to the center of the galaxy. Yes, he was certain that the backcountry trails had to be where it was at. But it was about to get less boring, and he was having second thoughts about that judgment. He didn't like what he saw coming up one bit. Now there was a circular structure like a pergola, which became their landing pad. The finish was gunmetal with a faint sheen. A staircase exited the far side and descended into the far away, until it was a barely perceptible string tethering the colonnaded pad to the immense emptiness that was before and below, which was that void in the center of the Milky Way. Eddie's feet clung to the pad's own gravity. He could no longer fly at will. That power had been taken from him. But they weren't alone there. Eleven monks robed in burgundy, waited around the circle, heads down and hidden by their hoods. Eddie looked to Avery. She remained as silent as their new company. She only raised her arm to point down the stairway to oblivion. I'm... I'm supposed to go down there? Eddie stuttered. I... I don't want to... He started to say, but he checked his emotionality and started over. This is death, then. This is oblivion. What if I don't go? What if I want to live? Avery's dead eyes rested just offset from his own. The side of her nose twitched, ever slightly. And then as her glare met his, he was bathed once more in that red torment of the furnace. He screamed and fell on his knees and tried to crush his head in his own hands. Now, terribly. The desire he felt would slake the pain was not to be united with Avery. 
but to descend that evil staircase. Mercifully, the torment lifted. In this reprieve, Eddie gazed up and found Avery a steely glare in return. Her nose continued to spasm. Her eyes seemed watery. Don't make it difficult, she said. You can go in pain or on your own. It's how it is for everyone. It's just how it is. We've all got to... Go. Sometime. Eddie examined the monks. There were eleven. They kept their heads down and didn't look at him. Their hoods covered their faces, hanging almost straight down. Eddie became aware that he could hear a sound like knives sharpening. It was coming from all around. Something dark dribbled out from the hoods, droplets here and there. There were wet noises, too. Eddie looked to Avery. Go, damn it, she said, and maybe there will be something on the other side of nothing. Her fingers went to her collarbone. She glanced side to side at the monks. It gets worse, she said. It gets worse if you stay. These are the priests of the masochism. Eddie followed her glance to the monks in time to glimpse something like kitchen knives emerge from the hem of one's hood. A cluster of them, blade first, spinning, dancing with a crescendo of that metallic noise. Red droplets spilled as the blades retracted again. Something fell from the hood and smacked wetly onto the floor. It was a hunk of flesh. Eddie took a step backward toward the staircase. The monks, as one, took a step inward. Avery raised her hand at him, and he was flooded with the red torment. He turned and threw himself down the steps, stumbling in his haste until he found his stride to sprint down the steps toward the release from the pain. As he ran, he felt pursued, like there was a giant flying hand just short of snatching his collar and picking him up like a kitten. But he couldn't let it. His thirst was for the oblivion now. In the delirium of his pain, it was easy to assume this pursuing force was Avery. But he couldn't let her save him. He only wanted one thing now. Annihilation. Rest. The staircase ahead of him exploded. His feet tumbled to a barely controlled stop as the torment cut away. Turning, he expected to see Avery, the fool she'd rescued him. But no. In space just beyond the atmospheric bubble of the pergola, hovered an edifice akin to an ancient ziggurat. Already, both Avery and the monks returned this assault. The monks took flight, like hornets from a smashed nest, as the thing fired again, destroying the landing pad. Avery evaded its destruction and floated backward in space, shooting red energy from her cuffs toward the massive gunmetal ship. As the staircase crumbled, Eddie's feet floated off from the steps and he was re-enveloped by his own personal atmosphere. Because of what was going on, it took Eddie too long to realize one of the massacrism priests wasn't joining the others against the vessel, but instead was soaring toward him. The thing flew, head down but arms extended, reaching for Eddie. Eddie reacted too late as knives showed themselves from the oversized sleeves. The creature tackled Eddie and flew him into the remains of one of the columns. Backed against the stone, Eddie watched the hood fall back from the head mere inches from his face, revealing a head which was once, clearly, a human head or something like it. It was flesh, flesh mingled with mechanical apparatus like a food processor, that was actively working on its host. A singular, halved eyeball stared him down from the lumpy, scored remains of meat and skin drenched in blood. The remains of a mouth fell open. 
in what Eddie took for a hissing battle cry, but which was more like a breathless gasp through lips threaded together with bloody spit. The head exploded, spraying Eddie with blood. A beam of green light picked Eddie up from the column and pulled him toward the ziggurat ship. At a certain distance from Avery, the torment set in again, wanting to drive him toward her. When Avery saw this, she redoubled her assault on the ship while trying to make her way toward him, but a fleet of swallow-shaped machines were dispatched to intercept her, and the last thing Eddie saw of her was that they drove her out into space. All things throbbed red, while fading in and out of black. What he'd remember clearest was the room, a stainless steel cube, and himself looking out from some sort of transparent tube upside down. The pain drove him in and out of consciousness, and he couldn't tell how much of it was Avery, and how much of it was what these people were doing to him, and he couldn't tell whether the craft was red, or it was only his experience. The people, as he called them for his sanity, were like amoebas. The reason he thought there might be more to the pain than his bond to Avery was the Swiss army knife of surgical tools that was on a mechanical arm in the tube with him. At times he was present, and at other times he was in the past, and still other times he was nowhere at all. Eddie felt something hard pressing into his craw, and he thrashed. It didn't penetrate, but just shoved ineffectually and uncomfortably up where the sun seldom shone. He opened his eyes again, and it was gone, as the red, steel room focused and unfocused again. An enormous pair of humanoid calves strolled in, turned to face him, and then left. Eddie tried to call out, but found himself muted by the fluid in which he was suspended. He could still feel it, what it was like to get shot and die. He fantasized about tearing himself apart with his bare hands and, as if in answer to a dark prayer, the surgical tools began to move into position to work. Eddie tried to scream again wanted to hug Avery. Lord, the thought of her face in that stupid mask seemed so sweet. Images of blood and flesh pouring under the monk's hoods flashed. It felt like solving an insoluble algebra problem over and over, only if numbers were knives driven into his skull and the color was evil. It was actually evil like him. He was evil. He could still feel the bullet. It went deep inside of him like an explosive brass dildo. Fruit peel pinned him against the locker. As much as you talk about me being a fag, maybe you're the one who actually likes it up the butt, he said. Eddie couldn't remember the last time he cried. No, he, he could. It was over his sister Mari stealing his skittles and spilling them all over the running boards of the Forerunner a year and a half ago. This was rather different. Steph Spender's head was on the floor of the hall, staring up at him with glassy eyes. He felt the unforgiving rectangle insisting itself at the back door, knocking like a Jehovah's Witness. Seeing Eddie grimace and blubber, Peel shoved harder. It didn't go anywhere, just rammed against the surface. All Eddie could do was fight. He would die. But at least it might not be via getting bullet-fucked in the butt. But as he screamed and tried to turn on Peel, he heard the shot before he felt it, and then it felt, Oh, God. The giant calves lumbered out of the room. Eddie thought he already saw that happen, but he was upside down, and time was weird when you were upside down, and his head... He became aware something else was going on, the pain, other pain, 
a lesser but highly unsettling pain that wasn't red but was glistening, silvery, sharp. He looked on in horror at his abdomen, where the tools on the arm were toying with his strange new shadow flesh, cutting it, peeling it, probing into it. He could see he was not made of skin and meat and organs anymore, but he was like gray jello. He opened his mouth ineffectually in the fluid for a scream that couldn't be. Avery. She was the only piece. He started to black out again, but forced his eyes to focus instead. Every bit of him vibrated with anxiety, torment, unease. Power? Each red flash was a stab into his cranium. A gunpowder joust into his ass. He screamed into the fluid. It began to boil. To his own surprise, the tube burst and the fluid poured out onto the floor. He grabbed the surgical arm in his hand and wrenched it and tore it from the wall with strength he didn't know he had. For a moment, he was no longer a human shape, but a great black bullet, writhing with veins and eyes made out of shadow. That homing sense told him the way to Avery, and he launched himself toward the wall, exploding through the hole as a great muscular and human-like arm reached for him, and the ship began to crumble as it lost integrity. Eddie laughed and wept intermittently through the interstellar medium. The torment, however, was a constant. The homing sense led him to a small iron planetoid, far out from anything. He was done laughing as well as crying by then, even before the torment receded as he neared Avery. She reclined in a depression like a doll cast aside. She did not seem conscious at first. There was a wreck of one of the swallow things that pursued her nearby. Eddie fell to the surface and curled into a ball, his mind nearly wiped blank by the inhuman strain of what he'd endured. Now, for a moment, there was only silence. Within and without, he was broken, deeply and critically. He could feel the fractures through his being. The thing was, they had always been there, even before all of this. They had always been there. Eventually, he raised his head and looked at Avery. She was looking at him. Her costume was in tatters. She sat up now. You should have stayed away, she told him sternly. You shouldn't have come back to me. I had no choice, did I? He stammered. The, the, the pain. You are almost out of range, she muttered lowly. I'm not supposed to tell you there's a range, but you are almost out of it. He was silent for a moment, then he said dryly, Well, I guess I just don't mind your company. He looked at the ruined fighter craft. You're tough, he said, struggling to his feet. Like a superhero, you just smashed a shit ton of alien spaceships and smashed into a planetoid, like the Hulk or something. Starbat, she mumbled. A starbat, he repeated. She started to struggle to get up, and he helped her. What is this place? he wondered. They stood and surveyed the object. It was dark bluish steel, tarnished with age or the forces of exile in space, irregularly shaped and covered in pits and spires like stalagmites. Thank you, Eddie said to Avery suddenly. For what? she said almost aghast. For what? he repeated. 
You tried to save me from getting sucked into that pyramid ship. I saw you. Her face got dark and angry. It's my job, she insisted. Don't thank me. I still have my job. What is your job, Avery? He demanded. I was told what to do, not why, she said. I take those who are finished on Earth to the center of the galaxy for destruction. I make sure they make it there. I make sure they don't escape, and I make sure no one tries to take them like... like just happened. She paused a moment. Are you... are you okay? She asked him this, almost grudgingly, like she couldn't admit that she was concerned for him. What happened? How did you get free from them? Eddie shook his head. I don't want to talk about it. I'll just say I found out I can go Super Saiyan and do a number on a space cruiser. She touched his arm. Nodding, she said. I'm sorry for whatever they might have done to you. They... They want those who are like you. Why? he demanded. She shook her head. The degenerate angels... Her hand went to her collarbone. They're not... angels. They can't be. They're... They're just... just beings. People. Creatures like you and me. Just... worse. But the others call them... degenerate angels. Others. The others scattered through all these stars, she said. A tiny light caught Eddie's eye. It was soaring high over the planetoid, among the stars like a satellite seen from Earth. What's that? He pointed. She turned and watched, and then hummed. Avery took flight suddenly, and Eddie followed at her heels. The tattered cape flowed strangely in the low gravity as they pursued the glistening object. It flashed as it caught passing light and then went dark. They hurried after it. What they found was a satellite in orbit around the planetoid. It was a silvery box with projections and a dish. On the side facing away from the surface, there were embossed logographs, some form of hieroglyphic writing. In the middle of them, there was one larger and in greater relief than the others, and picked out in a plate of bronze. It was a human face like a theater mask, and something, blood, presumably, dripped around its edges. They looked it over, and then looked at each other. After a moment, Avery flew back toward the surface. Eddie again followed. They had apparently chased the satellite nearly halfway around its circumference, and now approached from a completely changed vantage that revealed a surface feature, like a giant storm grate you'd see in a street gutter, but very large. As they came down near the edge of the grate, Eddie directed Avery's attention to the surrounding spires. These aren't natural either, he said. Look close. They're like warped columns. They were man-made, or something made. Avery looked at them again. Deformed by high heat, partially melted, Eddie went on. It's like this whole thing is made out of steel, and it used to be something. Something else. They looked at each other. This time, Eddie was the first to fly, and Avery had to follow him as he dove into the giant grate. The interior was much like the exterior, albeit mostly smooth and finished. 
It was less tarnished than the outside and resembled brushed steel. The first segment was a wide tunnel with featureless surfaces. The next opened up into a cubic chamber with niches along the walls. In the center there was what evoked an altar, and to each side a figure molded from steel, molded of one piece with the rest of the room. But there was something else here, too. While untarnished like the outside, an oily contamination smeared portions of the chamber and the floor where much of this dark, refractive substance had been spilled, was dotted with boils. Eddie and Avery went around the room in opposite ways, while Avery began around the room clockwise, examining the niches and the boils. Eddie went straight for the altar and the figures. On the left of the altar sat something like a gruesome Buddha on an organic throne. He had a wide chin with three points, a high brow leading to a tiered tiara, evoking what the Pope would wear. His left hand was raised like he was waving. His eyes were serene, cold, and dead. His abdomen was open and rotten-looking. Eddie could see guts and ribs. This sculpted decay extended in spots over his body, including a portion of that wide jaw, which was missing to expose teeth and tongue. The throne he was on looked like a dead spider curled in on itself. It even had a black widow's hourglass on the front, which resembled a spider's abdomen. Some of the oily substance had smeared the statue, including the half of the face on the side of the altar. The second figure stood, but was only about as tall as the former due to the throne. This one was skinny and veined with something like rubber fuel lines. These hoses mingled with plant-like motifs that tangled like vines up around the legs and wrapped around the arms out into his outstretched hands. His mouth was hidden in something like a muzzle. The top of his head was crowned with three long projections. In his open palms were two lotus-like flowers. Again, there was some of the oily contamination around the base of the figure. With gods like these... Who needs devils? Eddie muttered to himself. He turned his attention to the iridescent stain, which ran up the wall behind the figure. And then he saw that the back of the figure was stained as well. He brought up his hand and considered touching it. Now, seeing his own skin in front of the stain, he could not help but observe the similarity in the faint light. His shadow arm and the stain seemed to be the same shiny, dark material. He was about to call Avery when he saw what was like the shadow of his hand on the shoulder blade of the idol. But it had extended out of the stain following his hand and was of the same material as the stain and his flesh. He moved his hand and it moved with it like a child playing mirror. Eddie's mouth fell open. Before he could call to Avery, he turned again to the wall. The stain was in the shape of a person facing him. Eddie flew back and screamed. A singular, oversized eye opened in the shadow man and stared serenely at Eddie before closing again and vanishing. What is it? Avery demanded, approaching. The human shadow was gone. I... I saw something, Eddie gasped. What does this shit look like to you? He asked. Look at it! Look at me! I'm made out of this shit! Why am I made out of this shit? And I just saw... A person! Like a shadow of a person on the wall. 
It's what's left when you quit your body on Earth, she said. It does look like the same stuff. I don't know what it means, Eddie. I don't know. And what are these things? He demanded, gesturing at the floor, which was littered with tarry boils. As he did this, he couldn't help but keep glancing at the wall where he'd seen the figure. Avery shook her head. I don't know what's going on, Eddie, she said. It's not my place to understand. I just believe this will all make sense in... In what? Eddie said. Avery sighed. It was hard to force the words that used to come so easily. God's plan, she muttered. I can't believe what I've seen is all there is. That this madness is all there is. I want to believe God is still out there and has a plan for us. And this is not all there is. Eddie only nodded. His family had never been religious. And this confession now surprised him. And he didn't really know what to say. Plus, this seemed like the least appropriate time and place to be talking Sunday school stuff. To him, all he was seeing and had seen had only made it more clear to him that all that junk was just a delusion for the feeble-minded and the insecure. None of this had anything to do with Jesus or heaven. That shit was for sure. Eddie wandered out to the middle of the floor and scoped out the dark nodules. I don't like this, he called back. Avery stood staring into the eyes of the right-hand statue. This was some sort of weird temple. And then it's like something happened to it, and I suspect this thing wasn't always in space. It was blasted into space. That's why the architecture's melted on the outside. It, like, like somebody wanted to get this, this contamination the hell away from them. We should leave, Avery. We should leave. A number of the blisters on the floor had broken open apparently long ago. They were dry now, brittle and they were pitch black inside, where they had cracked like eggs. Eddie found one that had not cracked open. The surface was more like his own skin, and the shadow he'd seen a moment ago, shiny, moist, semi-translucent. He reached as if to feel it. Avery, he said with rising terror. We need to get out of here. Tissue shifted within the boil. A singular, oversized human eye opened in the midst of it and gazed calmly at him. As his heart skipped, a similar eye blinked in the back of his own hand. Eddie backed up. Avery! He called. She snapped too, as if from a trance. What is it? She called back. We're not alone in here. Let's go! A second arm branched from the statue's forearm, composed of shadow and eyes and wrapped its hand around Avery's mouth and pulled her back toward it. Her eyes flew wide as she reached for the thing that had its grip on her. Eddie rushed toward her. A second face bloomed out of the figure behind her head, a face which broke forth with a jagged, sharp-toothed grin. The pustule by Eddie's feet throbbed and burst, and something like a dog-sized deer tick launched from it and skittered toward Avery. It was made of the shadow substance, and had one large human eye centered in its flat, circular abdomen. Eddie lunged after it, but stopped himself as Avery raised her cuff. A flash of red cut through the chamber and struck the creature, which, like a tick, proved surprisingly indestructible. 
The thing was not deterred at all. Avery screamed. Eddie swooped in and seized it by its backside. Its long, knobbly legs struggled to reach for his face as the giant eye made contact with his own. Ah! He gasped, and he chucked it toward the entryway with all his might. There was another flash, but not from Avery. From the pinprick light of the transiting satellite, a burst like lightning caught the creature and flung it out into space. Panting in the non-existent air, with mere mimicries of lungs, Eddie looked to Avery. The arm had released her and vanished along with the face. She was now backing away from the sculpture, holding it under the aim of her cuffs. We're not supposed to be here, she mumbled. What is this place? Eddie demanded of no one. Then he said again, Let's go, and grabbed her arm. She kept mumbling, We're not supposed to be here. They clambered through the entry hall toward the giant steel grate. Eddie kept an eye behind them. More of those pustules were bursting, and more things were crawling out. We've got more, he announced. Eddie, she said in a panicked voice. Earth is that direction. What? he said. There are navigational lines built into these cuffs, Eddie, she said. And that satellite shot the insect toward Earth. Not just toward Earth, but precisely at Earth. They're sending these things to Earth? he cried. My God! An alien invasion! Avery started to say something, but stopped herself. Eddie, too insistent on moving ahead, did not press her. They're coming through the tunnel, Eddie announced. She grabbed his hand and flew. Tendrils of shadow shot after them. They were almost at the grate when one caught and wrapped Avery's ankle. Sensing he'd lost her, he stopped and turned. Avery! he called. She began blasting at the long black arm that had seized her to little effect. She broke through one strand just as another replaced it and held her fast. Then, again, she blasted a strand to breaking just as it was replaced. Tari lumps lumbered through the shadows toward them in the corridor. They could not make out the exact shapes. Eddie grabbed Avery around the waist and tried to pull her free while she blasted at their attackers. It wasn't working. No, Eddie, she said in a panic. It's not an invasion. Look at you. He swallowed and searched her eyes. These things are us, Eddie. They're sent to Earth to be us, and I take them back out to die. This is like some sort of nest. Eddie only growled and swatted at the reaching tentacles. Then why are they attacking us? He demanded after a moment more. She shook her head. They're not attacking us. They're attacking me. You're one of them. I mean, I think I am too, but I still have my body and they must take me differently. I don't know. She was right. There were plenty of tentacles now to grab Eddie as well. But they seemed only concerned with keeping a hold of Avery. A lightning bolt flew from the satellite and threw one of the approaching lumps out into space toward Earth, and then the next one after it. As that one flew by, Eddie thought it looked like a giant pill bug, with many legs and human eyes. Avery's legs were now wrapped up, as if by a python, and a sense of futility overtook Eddie. More lightning bolts from above threw the approaching creatures out into space, and Eddie wondered if the satellite could work fast enough to save them if they just held out. 
but these long, stringy arms now had Avery, and had her good, and the satellite wasn't doing anything about that, and the lightning wasn't keeping up very well with the creepy crawlies. A tick-like creature clambered out onto the tether toward Avery. Eddie prepared to swat at it and try to knock it off, but the satellite got it first. However, others were behind it on the line, more ticks. The tick shape and the fact they were fascinated with Avery's body were very concerning to Eddie. These two facts taken together began to paint a picture he didn't like one bit. Eddie swatted a tick creature from the tether. It drifted in the low gravity toward the wall and eventually latched onto it. More were coming. Lightning took away another pill bug. Eddie began to feel that burning anxiety he'd felt before when they had captured him. He grabbed a tick creature. Its little bony finger legs searched for him until he punched through its center with a cry. Then before he knew it, he was tearing through the tethers with his bare hands, which were bigger now, and clawed, and burned with night-black flames. He tore Avery from the striving vines and carried her through the grate into the field of stars, where they turned back, and he let her go, and they stared at the cursed planetoid. Shadow creatures began to spill from its maw, some of them getting zapped by the satellite as they appeared. Thank you, Eddie, she said. Let's get away from here. Her voice was tired, shaky. Disgusting he mumbled. What? What is it? she asked. Them, he said. Us. All of it. This is what we are? I guess I always knew it. Let's go, Eddie, she said again. Where? Back to the black hole for me to jump in? I... I don't know, she stuttered. To him, it was a yes. No lie. I'm taking them with me, he said after a moment. What do you mean? she said urgently. I'm going to throw them into the black hole. Isn't that what they're good for, these things? And me? Eddie, she said meekly. They're human lives. Are they? he said. And if they are, I can't say I care much for humanity anymore. With that, Eddie soared off on his own, black coronal blaze roaring around him and raw power surging through his dark veins. He circled around and shoved the planetoid like Superman. It began to drift, with him as the engine, back toward the great blank in the center of the galaxy. Eddie, you can't! Avery cried after him, and she began to follow. They're human beings! Help me! He called back. No! she declared. Why not? he returned. Cattails. The pier at the city pond. The longing to see her family. She'd taken everything she'd had for granted. How she wanted it all back. She'd be a willing captive in the prison of her own home. She felt the cross at her collar. This can't be all there is, she thought again. There has to be more than this. There has to be a purpose, a value to life. Eddie, stop! She cried. He'd gotten the planetoid advancing quickly against the field of stars. She trailed afterward, reaching for him. Damn it, Eddie! She swore under her breath. She shot a blast at him. It exploded against the surface of the object, separating him from it momentarily. 
Eddie, stop! She pleaded again. He was already pushing. She fired again. This time he turned. Eddie burned with black energy. His purple veins throbbed. Eyes had opened all over his body. This corruption deserves to die, he said. These are human lives, she pleaded. They belong to God. They're meant to be born, Eddie. How can you say any of this belongs to God, he retorted. As he started to turn back to the object, she shot him directly, and he tumbled backward twice into space before righting himself and flying toward her. Avery started to cry. She blasted him again. Now he flew at her in a rage, long claws outstretched, a thousand killer eyes trained on her. Help or don't help, Eddie screeched. But this is what I'm doing! She trained her cuffs on him and triggered the red torment. He curled up and tumbled through space in a fetal position, but then he redoubled his resolve and flew toward the planetoid despite the punishment. Avery flew after him and tackled him. She clasped him in her arms, and he writhed and deformed and tried to slip away like gelatin. But she held fast and flew him away toward the black hole. Avery, she heard him say, softly. Starbat. The event horizon dawned before them like an onyx ocean, blacker than any human night. She cast him toward it. As he turned to fly back at her, she blasted him. Pieces of shadow scattered from him as he sneered at her. Unlike the creatures in the planetoid, she could hurt him. He was weak, weakened by the imprisonment of a wearing life on Earth. And that is why he would die. That is why, when she cast him into the event horizon, he would be annihilated, along with all of the latent power within him. She hit him again. He tumbled backward and splayed out somersaults through space. She shuddered and cried. He was gone. She saw him ripped apart. The job was done. She felt sick. It was a feeling that was getting old. A feeling that kept wearing on her soul, breaking her down. We got into a fist fight with Dumbsday. We're comic book customers who didn't want to buy his book. Oh, oh, careful, Brentlock. You just misgendered them again. Oh, I can't help it. Looks like an Abrams tank with a penis. Ow! Is this a good representation of transgender people? Dang! Our powers aren't having any effect on him. Oh, 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 hold my beer, team. He's doing it. Wait. How come Puggles is the only one who can prevail against Dumbsday? Puggles can prevail because he's a woman. You go, Puggles! They subdued.
Now unmask them. See, it's the same old white guy underneath the vaguely ethnic makeup. But what mastermind unleashed Dumbsday to stop us? Look! The wizard appeared. I warned you not to enter. You toxic young men are all the same with your love of guns and tatas. It's pathetic how you young men all continue to fawn over superheroes and Marvel movies and Star Wars as if you were still 13 years old. If you didn't want us to read comics, why did you make them awesome? We all make mistakes when we are young. You see, I was young once. No way. And I once heard the call of the Bam and the Pow and the Tartars. And I, even I too, entered the comics gate. Yes, even I. But I am wiser now, more mature. That why you've got the Depends. The comics gate is evil. It is a corrupter of dreams and a corrupter of young men. What's up his butt? I know! Great value, Gandalf seems butter, doesn't he? No, look, beyond the diaper. There is something up his butt. No, you must heed my warning and leave the comics gate. Pay no mind to your swine friend's rocking rack and pork roast. Pardon my reach, Grandpa. Look. Owie. It's a copy of The Watchman. He had his own comic shoved up his ass. Meh. The publisher. He boarded up my life's work and shoved it up the old long box. They sodomize the creators with their own creations. It's just how the industry works. As I told you, it's all evil. So you were buttered that your publisher stuck your artistic legacy up your ass. If, if only I could be young and naive again. <laughs> just enjoy the blammo and the fragaboom and the rocking, rocking tatas. Oh, the simpler times. Oh, alas for my dead boyhood dreams. Bah! <laughs> Pathetic! Let's blow this periodical stand! Hey, Domesday, what's up? What do you say you and I get out of here and make bacon while the pork is fresh? Oh, Brett. I don't think the comic book world is all I wanted it to be. Let's jet, man. Hold on. Alan. You did good. You did good, sir. Comic book world! I must go. My own world needs me, but... I vow I will return. Well, we're back in boring world. The colors are so flat. And the chests, too. Wait! Dude! My wallet's been picked. Where'd all my money go? We gotta go back! No, Matt. That's normal. Comics is an expensive hobby. But hey, check out this rad cyberfrog statuette I just dropped $200 on. Monster Bone Podcast is a production of Warbox Media. Today's story is Starbat by Brett Norwood. Music by him too. Thank you, Miss Ebbie. Ebbie, 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 Ebbie,
Good day, Monsterbaiters. Brett here. If you enjoyed this episode of Monster Porn, please make sure you're subscribed and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also check out our merch store at monsterpornpodcast.com store, where you can find t-shirts, phone cases, stickers, sand, and refurbished Soviet ICBMs. While you're at monsterpornpodcast.com, sign up for our newsletter for bonus Monster Porn content. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. That's it. Until the shark angels come, in the day that the finger-headed giants shall roam the earth, stay weird, and Godspeed, strange cowboy. Indeed I do, Matt. We've held off on pushing our... Pushing? Pushing our merch. <laughs> hey, what about Pug? Shit, that was a really bad interruption voice. <laughs> Fucking line thing. <laughs> I like how your ponytail is... God damn it, some surfer voice got in there. <laughs> uh, dude, yeah, bro, you're flo- just flowing ponytails and shit, yeah. You see... We all must, yeah, my, my screen went black.